I just want to say uh, some personal things. I, I will not use this moment and this pulpit uh, for, a, for a place to do personal things. It's God's, um, but I, I, I think He'll allow me to do this. I want to thank you as a congregation for embracing uh, my family and for embracing myself. Uh, we, are, we have been fed well, and um, we've enjoyed being with you. We enjoy the worship. I would say don't change a thing, except that I know that you haven't arrived yet. None of us have, so we all need to be changing some things. We all need to be continuing to live and walk in repentance and to uh, live and walk a life of sanctification in Christ. But when I, if I were to say don't change a thing, what I mean is keep on keeping on and, and keep on going in that direction and, do, and adoring Christ and adoring His Word and each other. And, uh, and the world around you that you're, that you're trying to reach uh, with the gospel. I, I can tell you this, that my children, uh, and I'm speaking for my wife and I too, I guess I'm trying to make a point about saying it about my children. They thoroughly enjoy coming here and coming to worship with you. That's a big change for children to make a transition just like that in their lives. And, and they, they ask to come here. They ask to, to be a part of things. And it's not because... Uh, anyone here has wined and dined them. I uh, use those, those words symbolically, of course. And it's not because they, you, you went to play anywhere with them or do something like that, but it's because of how you worship Jesus and how you revere and honor His Word. And, um, and so that, that means a lot to the heart of a father, of a daddy, uh, when their children want to be somewhere and worship the Lord for the right reasons. And so I just want to thank you for that. Um, I am going to read, if you'll open your Bibles, from Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. When you have one message uh, uh, to preach, I find that more difficult than having a hundred. Because I too believe in preaching through books. And so the next text and verses are right in front of you. And you don't have to wonder what you're doing next. It takes work to exegete those things and to explain them right, and a lot of humility and fear before the Lord to do that, but at least you know what direction you're going in. When you have one, well, you pray and, and say, okay, uh, I, you know, I hope that this is something that the church needs. I'm sure it is because it's going to come out of the Bible, so I'm, I'm positive about that. But, you know, you hope that it's timely. And based on just some of the things we have sung together this morning, I, I think it is, and I certainly would not want to overstep uh, the direction or get ahead of your, your leaders in, in here and, or your pastor. And so I don't think that'll happen either. I trust the Lord uh, that He will teach us all something this morning. I, I'm going to read all of chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to focus <clears throat> on verses 14 through 21 as a passage, and even, and even more so, really, the first two or three verses. Uh, in that passage, 14, 15, 16. There's no way, obviously, we can cover all of that. But just to get the, the big idea of what's happening here, if I, and I'm going to have to go back in some explanation in a few minutes, I need to read all of chapter 3. So chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, you have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that He gave to me for you. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have brief, briefly written above back in chapter 2. 
By reading this, you are able to understand my insight about the mystery of the Messiah. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of His power. This grace was given to me, the least of all saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to the purpose of the ages which He made in the Messiah, Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness, access, and confidence through faith in Him. So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are for your glory. And He did have afflictions. Verse 14. For this reason, I, Paul, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that He may grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge, so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in you, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray for just a moment. Heavenly Father, I pray that the truth of Your Word would pierce our hearts. I pray that You would teach and comfort and convict and guide each and every heart in this place. Do in each one of us exactly what You know we as individuals need done in our souls. And do in this body as a whole body that is being built up in Christ. Do what you know this body needs. Lord, I, I, I pray that, that everything that is said right, and I know that the reading of your word is right, but everything that is commentated on, Lord, that you would, you would protect us. You would protect your people, that you would protect, protect me as, as a speaker, and that they'd forget anything that I say that may be wrong or not your will, Lord, but they, they would remember that we would all remember whatever is truly from you and by your Spirit and from your Word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me just give another little bit of introduction before I, I, I get going here. I, I don't know that anybody's ever said anything this about, about my preaching. I just know that I have felt this way. And that is, sometimes I've often wondered, is, is my preaching brutal? 
And I can imagine that some may have said that a time or two in the past, and not as a negative thing necessarily, maybe, maybe not, but I guess that I, 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 I figure that because I know what the Word of God does to me before and after I've had to preach and explain it. And um, I, I know what I'm made out of and, and what needs to be done and reshaped and what needs to be cut away and what needs to be added. And so I know what happens in my own heart as I, as I read the Word of God and as I, I further understand what God is saying to me as a sinner saved by grace being sanctified. And so sometimes I just feel that it's brutal. I don't mean that in a bad way. It just, it just beats me up sometimes. And, and God, God does His work in my heart. Uh, I can assure you of this, that, that no one likes to be liked any more than I do to a flaw. I like to be liked. I don't know anybody that doesn't, but I like it. But I can also tell you that nobody has any more fear of the Lord than I feel like I have. I don't know. I can't compare my heart to anybody else's. Uh, about uh, standing and saying, thus says the word of the Lord, than, than I have when I stand in this place. I probably needed a little more fear as I've prepared it many times, but I don't know of anybody that has any more fear when they, when they speak it or try to communicate the word of the Lord to people. No, no coach wants his team to be in, embarrassed on the field of play because of his or her lack of preparation of those kids. And more than that, no, no coach wants their kids to be hurt in, in, on the field of play. No, uh, no officer wants their soldiers to be hurt because of a lack of preparation, uh, because maybe training or practice wasn't, quote, brutal enough to prepare for the real thing for people that were really after them. And likewise, no overseer, no preacher, no pastor wants people that he pastored or that he taught to approach judgment or live life unaware and unprepared because of negligence to tell the truth about what the Word of God really says. So um, well, as, I, as I share out of this passage this morning, this, this verse is 14 through, through 21. Uh, it, it is encouraging. I, I want it to be, and it is. He says things, I pray that He may grant you according to the riches of His glory, with power through His Spirit, that the Messiah may dwell in you. Really encouraging words. But if we look, and we are, at the context that they sit in, and the life that Paul was living out, living this out, then I think it's, it's extremely uh, challenging to us, and, and may even seem a bit brutal. But I, I promise you this, I... When we get to the end and there's some application of how this may apply, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't know what He's going to do specifically in you, uh, even in me, to, to make these things uh, happen. What specific uh, incidents in life are going to happen for us to, to grow into these things? I, I can assure you this, however it comes out in the end and the application, I, I'll say these things as uh, in respect of this church in respect of you and the respect of what I, what I, the direction uh, that, I see, that I see it going in. Jesus uh, told His disciples, He warns us, don't throw your pearls before swine. Um, in other words, don't throw spiritually valuable things in front of fools. You don't throw wisdom in front of fools. And if there is any wisdom in what's shared with you this morning from my mouth and from my heart... Uh, I, and I hope that there is, that God 
allows that for us. I want you to know that the challenges are there um, and maybe even some harshness at the end, not because I don't respect you, but because I do. I assure you of that. So with that being said, what in the world is he talking about? Uh, let's, let's get into this, this passage. Look at uh, verse 14 again in Ephesians chapter 3. And just want to key in on this phrase for a moment. Paul, Paul writes these words. He says, for this reason. He says that twice. He said it in verse 1 at the beginning of chapter 3. He says it again in verse 14. For this reason. Before I go any further, I, I kind of need to ask myself, what reason? What, what reason is he talking about? Well, we've got to recap Ephesians just a little bit. And if you'll look back at chapter 1, verse 3, not too, too far to go there. Maybe you won't even have to flip your page. Ephesians 1, verse 3. I'm just going to hit a few. Verse 7, 9, 11. Just to get an idea of some things that he's been talking about when he comes up here and says, for this reason, and then he says he does something. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Now, we do need to remember, he's writing to the church, to the believers at Ephesus. And then he says in verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And I could read all of this, but we we don't have time. Verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure that He planned in Him. Verse 11, In Him we were also made His inheritance. Verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in Him when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 4, But God, who is abundant in mercy, because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with the Messiah even though we were dead in trespasses. By grace you were saved. He also raised raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you were saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast, for we are His creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time, so that we should walk in them. So when we think about Paul saying in verse 14, beginning this little part of the passage, for this reason, think about it like this, for this reason, in other words, because God is gracious, and has been gracious to you Ephesians, to you Gentiles, Because of His grace, Paul is saying, I'm inclined to do something. But Paul's reason is personal as well. Not just what what God's done for them as Gentiles, as former pagans. Paul's reason is personal as well. Even Paul the Jew has been included in the glorious work of Christ by grace. And look at chapter 3 that we're in, verses 7 and 8 again. Paul makes it very clear. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of His power. This grace was given to me the least of all saints 
to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So, for this reason, Paul says, for this reason, because God has been gracious to Gentile pagans, to misguided, pompous Jews like me. That's not a shot at Jews. I'm just saying that Paul knew what he was before Christ. Because God has been gracious to pagans and Gentiles and misguided Jews, legalistic people like me, because He is gracious, I am inclined, bent, resolved to worship before the Father. It leads me even more so, Paul saying, to worship. To the point of this... I bow my knees before the Father. In verse 14, he goes on to say that for this reason, because of God's grace, and he's, he, is, uh, he has written about that in detail in the, in the previous chapters, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Bowing is an act of honoring someone, and in this case, worshiping someone. Bowing can indicate several things. It can indicate humility, Thankfulness, dependence, appreciation, submission, all of these things and worship are involved here in what Paul's talking about. So let me say this. I believe Paul to be saying this. Because of God's grace to you and me, through Jesus His Son, and because His grace is greater than anything I could have ever imagined in my formerly unenlightened, legalistic, narrow, dead, and unconverted Jewish mind, I am joyfully and gratefully drawn to my knees to worship Him. And even more so, in light of verse 15. Look at that with me. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I do believe that there was probably some brokenness that that always stayed with Paul in that he missed the message of Jonah in all his studies, in his great intellect, in his zealousness for God before Christ, before he met Christ, that he missed, like so many other Jews and leaders, he missed the message of Jonah and the universality of God's love for the nations for so long. I have, I have no doubt that there was a brokenness that stayed in Paul that kept him reminded of who he was now in Christ and what his mission that was before him was. God can and does use brokenness in us to cause us to press on and never go back to former blindnesses and spiritual hindrances that we once knew. Example, Jacob's hip. It's always a reminder of who he was uh, before his eyes were opened. Paul's thorn. Always a reminder of who he was in Christ, who he was and who he wasn't, and how much he was dependent upon God working through him. So verse 15 again says, from whom every, every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now that Paul knows that God's love and grace, that God's heart is not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, and chapter 2 explains that, and I'll probably look into that some more in a minute. But now that God knows, now that Paul knows that God's love and grace and heart is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews, for people 
who in many ways were different from him, or at least in the way his mind formerly worked, but had been saved by no more or less grace than he was saved by, now he has a personal love and a heart and a passion for those people, for all the nations as well, because they truly are one. Look back with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Very significant to what he's saying here. Ephesians 2, verse 11. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called, and, and he's just admitting here, this is what we called you guys, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, done by hand in the flesh. At that time you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, with no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For He is our peace. Oh, all of a sudden, He's ours. He is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. He's confessing there was hostility. Spiritually, yes. Covenant-wise, yes. But but really in their attitudes and actions as God's people before then anyway. In His flesh, He did away with the law of the commandments and regulations so that He might create in Himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that He might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. When Christ came, He proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the cornerstone. Verse 21, very beautiful. The whole building is being fitted together in Him and is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Now here's some application. Let me just say this. And I, I've been very hesitant in the, the opportunities that I've had to speak. People have asked me to speak at some places, not a lot, but a few, and talk about being missionaries to Africa. And I usually go and I don't talk about that unless they've just asked me to tell them what we're going to do. And the reason I don't talk about being missionaries to Africa is I'm not one yet. I, I haven't gotten there. I'm willing. We're available. I think we'll be flying out in a couple of weeks. But I I just don't want to speak with any authority. I don't know that I want to when I get back. But I I don't want to speak with an authority about something that I haven't done. I can speak with authority about being a recipient of God's grace because I've received much. And the only thing I think Paul is wrong about in the whole Scripture is is that he's the least of all the saints because I think I am. Now you all understand I didn't just contradict the Word of God. I understand what he's saying. But I have the same sentiments towards myself but why, why do I want to go to Africa? I will speak to that just a moment. Uh, why do I want to take my family? And that's not really what the subject here is, but it, it, the application will apply here. Well, to some, some extent, I may never know this side of heaven, all the reasons that God wants us to go to Africa. I mean, I, first of all, I want to be obedient. That's 
Uh, that's, that's one of the nutshells I can put it in. So I don't know everything that God has in mind about that. But here's a few things that, that I do know uh, and reasons that I do want to go to Africa. And you don't have to go to Africa to live this out. That's not what I'm saying at all, but I believe He's called us to go. So this is a few reasons why I'm going. Number one, number one, God has been gracious to me all by itself. Number two, he, he planted something in me probably 26 years ago when I was a counselor at Camp Caraway when I was in college, and I heard some, some missionaries speak of that. It wasn't overwhelming. I don't have some emotional thing about I knew I was going then. I never thought about it too much. But there was a seed planted. Looking back with hindsight, there were some seeds planted through two or three men the summer of 1986 when I was working at Camp Caraway. Number three, God has been very, very gracious to me, all by itself. Number four, He stirred that something, that seed that He put in me probably 26 years ago. He stirred that in me about 12 years ago. And, and, and He did that while I was sitting in, in my office at East Carolina University in my dream job. I bleed purple. And I was working and doing exactly what I wanted to do. And I wanted to live in Greenville and go to ECU football games and retire there. And somehow, someway, I was no longer at peace with that just three years into that job. And this, this began to work on my heart a dozen years ago and in my car and listening to preaching and so forth. Number five, God has been overly gracious to me more so than He should have been. Number six, this is a little longer. I, I have brethren, you do too, but I have brethren, and, and this is really getting into what Paul's talking about here, his affection for the saints, for these Gentiles, that, are, that were, in his mind, much different from him before Christ saved him. I have brethren and future brethren, more that God will save, on that continent, on the continent of Africa, brethren that are co-heirs in Christ, just like me, just like you, brothers and sisters who are part of the same holy sanctuary that God is building you and I into. He's building them into it as well. And for some reason, I want to meet some of them. I want to know them. I want to worship with them. I want to learn from them what Western culture has blinded in me. Because it does. We do Americanize and Westernize a lot of things in Scripture unless we're careful to humbly bow before God and say, Lord, what does it really mean? What were your original writers being inspired to say to the original recipients? Help me to see that. And to not look through the glasses of my culture, but to look at my culture through the glasses of your Word. And, and we, we, I, I expect to learn much from the people there, from the believers there. And hopefully, God might use me, might use us to teach them something that the harshness and the, and the separateness and the poverty of Africa has made, made it difficult for the church to attain at times in terms of some discipleship and, and opportunities like we take for granted here in this country. Number seven, God has been gracious to me. Therefore, my wife and my children, well, that's really not the way I should say it because they're, they're not mine. My life is not mine. 
We do not belong to ourselves. Paul very freely uses the word servant, slave, doulos when he talks about himself. And that's who we are in Christ. We've been bought and we're his. Now, it's a little more application here. And just so that you'll know that people in Africa feel the same way about you. And again, I'm, I'm certainly not setting myself up as an authority on Africa, but I know this. We were shown a video when we were appointed, when we went to candidate week over a year, over a year ago, and we were appointed during that week in, in Pearl River, New York. And we were shown the video of a funeral in which some American missionaries, a man and his wife, were martyred in northern Uganda by some Muslims. And they were martyred. It wasn't an accident. They were called to the, to the door of their home. And we're really not going in a place that intense. I mean, you know, nobody knows what the future has, but we're not going into a place that intense. But they were in northern Uganda, called to the door of their home in the night, and they were gunned down in the doorway by Muslims, specifically because they were Christian missionaries. I think Africa Inland Mission has had five martyrs in 115 years. I mean, my, my chances of being mar- martyred going to Africa with AIM are, are less than, you know, getting hit by a car here, okay? So I don't make that an issue one way or another. But this couple had, in fact, been martyrs. They weren't just killed, they were martyred. And at the funeral, the president of Africa Inland Mission addressed the family and spoke to the congregation in beautiful words. But one, one thing that touched me more than anything, was an African pastor who stood up to speak, who knew this family, who knew this couple. And he said this, he said, you know, years ago, Africa was known to everybody in Europe and in the West as the dark continent. More more so because of the spiritual darkness we know that was here. He said, "We, we we are no longer in darkness not, not all of us. There, he said there's light. He said the, the, this couple that we knew and loved and people who came before us brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to us and we are now in the light. And he said this knowing the direction. I know when he said it, he knew the direction that America is going in and that a lot of Western nations who used to consider themselves Christian are going in. He said we are preparing to return the favor to you when you need it. And so this sentiment that Paul has for people who he formerly looked at much different and now calls co-heirs, brethren, he loves them. He gets down on his knees for them and prays for them that God would grant them everything they need and more spiritually and in eternity. This sentiment that Paul has, we are to have for one another, but we are to have for the nations, we are to have for people that we're different from physically, whether they be far or close, and some of those people in Christ have a great affection for us, whether we ever think about that or know that or not. So let me sum up. Verses 14 and 15, as it was built upon the preceding uh, chapters in this letter. True recipients of God's grace through Jesus, true recipients of God's grace, have gracious hearts towards others, in the name of Jesus, no matter how different or reprobate they may have been before Christ. Recipients of grace put out graciousness. 
It's just part of who we are, who we're supposed to be. Now look at verses 16 through 19 with me. Obviously, not just because of the time, but there's no way I can uh, explain all of that. But I don't want to leave it unattended to. Verses 16 through 19 say this. Paul says, okay, the reason that he bows his knees is because how gracious God's been to him and these people that he first he used to not like and now loves, maybe even hated. A lot of Jews did. And, and, and now he prays. This is specifically what he prays. I pray. And listen to the terms he uses here. That he may grant you according to the riches of his glory. Listen to what he's wishing. He's not just wishing that he's praying for these believers. To be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. And that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. And to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge, so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, I can't do justice to the rest of these verses this morning, but please note the following. First, Paul's worship towards his gracious God includes earnest prayers for his fellow heirs and saints. Verse 16, I pray. And in his prayers, he asks God to grant things to them that in and of themselves they would never be able to attain on their own. He asks God to grant them things that are beyond their ability to attain, but are accessible by God's power and God's application. So, listen to our dependence for growth and sanctification. Listen to verse 16 and 17 again. I pray that He may grant you, and again, we're listening for dependence here, He may grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit, in the inner man, and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you'll be rooted and firmly established in love. While sanctification does involve effort, we talked about that in Sunday school, or heard about that last Sunday a little bit, sanctification does involve effort and obedience on our part as Christians, but still, Sanctification is only successful by God's power and grace, unaccompanied by God's power and grace. Even our efforts to be sanctified would be futile. So again, Paul's thankful worship leads to prayers for good and godly things for his brethren, which inevitably entails a personal willingness. this, This is important. This is some more application for us. It entails a personal willingness to be used of God for them to receive those things if and when necessary. In other words, I can love people and I can pray for them and I can pray for God to give them good things. I can pray for God to make them more Christ-like and more godly. But when I do that, am I conscientiously a willing vessel if God says, okay, I want to use you to change to, to do some things in them. Are we willing to be that vessel? God, uh, Paul was willing to be that vessel. His letters, his imprisonment, his eventual uh, execution are evidence and proof of that. So, a little more application here, getting a little closer to home. If our Christian lives and our faith 
are truly receiving, and I'm getting near the end here, the riches of His glory, verse 16. If our Christian lives are truly receiving the strength of His power through His Spirit, that's in verse 16. If our walk of faith is truly receiving, what the, it truly has the Messiah dwelling in our hearts, verse 17. If we are truly rooted and firmly established in love, in verse 17. If we are growing in our comprehension of the length and the width and the height of God's love, in verse 18. If we really know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge and we're growing in that and walking in that and are filled with the fullness of God, then won't all these things be evident in our actions, in our words, in our ministries as individuals, but also as a body, as a church, as churches in an area? It just makes sense that we would exhibit those things. So if we exhibit those things, what does that look like? I mean, I see what it looks like for Paul, and I'm going to mention that again, but what does it look like? Well, let me give some biblical examples. It looks like God sending Jonah to Nineveh. Have any of you ever studied what the Assyrian Empire was like during that time and how cruel their soldiers and their armies were? Unspeakable things that they did to their victims and the people that they conquered. I mean, I really mean that. Some of the things shouldn't be spoken. It looks like God sending Jonah to Nineveh It looks like Paul traveling through and dwelling in pagan and Greek-Roman cities. It looks like Elizabeth Elliot and her little daughter, her innocent little daughter living in a village with people who just slew her husband. It looks like a perfect God, God the Son, fully God and fully man, living and dying in a fallen and a wicked world. Now, how should that affect how we view ourselves and where we live? This is where I'm almost scared for myself to say these things. But listen, how should that affect how we view where we live, the city that we live near? Which is no longer in its heyday. It's in economic decline. It has rising crime. I'm sorry, folks, but epidemic white flight gangs, how in terms of what we have heard Paul say and knowing how he used to feel about Gentiles and how he now loves them, how are we supposed to live that out where we live and who we live near and with the issues that we face? Is it a burden to live in Rocky Mount? I'm from there, okay? I'm from Edgecombe County from Hill Street. My parents still live there. Is it a burden to live there or near there or is it a privilege and one of our greatest opportunities? Do do churches need to be moving further from it? And listen, I know that this church physically has always been right here, okay? I know this is part of no flight. Don't, Don't misunderstand me. But do churches need to be moving further from it physically or at least spiritually or closer to it? Are our local churches more interested in being comfortable and safe and white than Christian? Because those are two different things, folks. We can't call one the other. I want to 
tell you again why we're going to Africa for this reason. We're, we're not going to Africa because we don't think there's anything to do here. That's not why. I think there's plenty to do here. We're going to Africa because we believe God wants us to go to Africa. And I want to obey that. But some of the things in the past years that have gone through Cindy and I's mind, and even the kids that we've talked about is buying, and I'm not talking about the church, I'm talking about personally, buying one of those little places downtown and putting the apartment upstairs like some people have done and having the business downstairs and living there. Buying a beautiful old house on Sycamore Street or down in the old mill section for a song. Fixing it up and living there. And when people start saying, oh, oh, that's dangerous around there. Why is it dangerous? Because there's kids and gangs. Well, why don't I live next door to one that might not become a potential gang member? Because when he or she is in need, us Christians are there to go next door and ask a mom, hey, do you need help with your child? We, we know Jesus and we'll help you out here. We'll pray with you. We'll tutor him after school. Is it possible that our, our, our vision of ministry where we live is, is too small. That's just some things we've thought about. Some things we'll can, now I'm in trouble because if and when we move back and stay here, what am I going to do? If I don't consider those things and ask God the possibility of those things, I want somebody to say something to me. Is 2 Timothy 1.7, you know that. Is 2 Timothy 1.7 true? For God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness, timidness, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. In other words, and again, uh, other congregations have done this. This means that when we go to churches and somebody's stealing our purses out of the choir room and somebody's scratching and breaking into our cars, do we say, oh, we've got to get out of here, or oh, this community needs Jesus more than it ever has? Is 1 Timothy 1.7 true? Are we supposed to be timid or not? Are we supposed to be fearful or not? And are we to walk in the truth of that text? And then right here at the end of our own, and I'm going to close with this, is Ephesians 3.20 and 21, the, the last two verses of this passage, this chapter, is Ephesians 3.20 and 21 true? And it says... Now to Him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in you, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Is that true? And if it is, are our lives not supposed to exhibit that? Is it possible that God could change a city through a congregation, one, one small one, that's willing to look at people for what Christ may do in them or what He's done in some already and what He's done in us and, and have a compassion and a love because we too are recipients of the same grace that every other Christian has and that every other person needs. And so I just want to leave with us that challenge that when we look at Scripture, it's easy to read things like this with a person like Paul talking about the Gentiles that he's talking about and not really make the connection that, listen, this, this love that he had for them was an impossibility before Christ. 
It just wasn't going to happen. And now he has it. Why does he have it? And if God changed him, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to look like? How are, how are our ministries supposed to look? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I, do, I do fear for myself and everyone here the implications of strong challenges and words, if in fact they come from man, if, Lord, they simply came from me. And like I prayed before, Lord, if, if that's the case, then I, I just pray that everybody would forget it. But if, Lord, you want something different, want something more from any one of us towards a difficult neighbor, towards a difficult uh, boss or employee, a difficult neighborhood, community, a city. Lord, if, if our outlook on people and places are not what yours is, then I pray, Lord, that you would hound us, that you would stay on me, that you would stay on us until we exhibit the same kind of love that Paul exhibited for a people that he would have never loved before Christ. Lord, cause us to love people in Christ Jesus with a graciousness that you have granted to us that we are so undeserving of. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.